Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Guyman was pointing out it's not exactly fall quite yet, though this week uh, I guess we'll start feeling more like like uh, like fall. Um, if you haven't already turned there, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 103. If not, we got it up on the screen. Thank you, Peter, for getting that up there. Um, before we jump into the, the psalm itself, I just wanted to point out a few things about this text that might not be so obvious at, at first sight. So if we look at uh, Psalm 103, it's sometimes been referred to as uh, an envelope psalm, which simply means that it begins and ends with the same phrase. So if you look there at the beginning of the psalm, it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. That same phrase is repeated at the very end of the psalm as well. This psalm also seems to be a, a, an intentional pair with Psalm 104. Um, that psalm, psalm 104 begins and ends with the same phrase, exhorting the, writer, uh, the writer's soul to praise the Lord. And what I would say is the meat of each of these psalms, we see that the writer goes on to give several reasons why God is worthy of worship. Though we are focusing on Psalm 103, I would encourage you at some point to go to Psalm 104, read through that as well, see the similarities, and just compare those two, those two psalms. Referring to Psalm 103, this is one that I would highly encourage you to read often meditate on, maybe something that you would read before coming to a worship service, something that would serve as a, a reminder of why we are doing what we are doing. Throughout the psalm, we are given multiple reasons for to, to worship God. Any one of them is enough for us to give God the rightful praise he deserves, yet we're given way more than that. Even with that being said, this psalm does not give us an exhaustive list of the reasons to worship. There are endless reasons to praise God, and that's the point of this psalm. To remind us of who God is and what he has accomplished. In light of that, every single created being is called to praise the Lord. With all that being said, let's jump into the text. There's a lot to get through. There's 22 verses, and I don't know how pastor gets through like five verses. I, I have to get through 22. So it, it may seem at times that we're flying through these, but we just got a lot of uh, a lot of material to get through. So we'll begin in uh, verse 1 here of Psalm 103. Praise for the Lord's mercies, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteousness and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, for 
nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And it, its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his, co his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So breaking down each of these each of these verses we'll begin with those first two verses as a pair there many times as we as we read a psalm it's very clear that it's directed to, at the reader or at the listener or to God himself it's usually some call to worship or a call to reflect on some aspect of God this this psalm starts just a little bit different in that David is calling upon his own soul to bless the Lord. He exhorts everything that is within him to bless his holy name. He repeats the phrase of, bless the Lord, O my soul, and as we've been told before many times, when an author repeats something twice, you should probably pay attention. If it's repeated three times, you better be paying attention. In, this, in the second verse, he adds a phrase, however, that sets us up for what is about to, he's about to list out in this psalm. David says, and forget none of his benefits. Now, how many benefits do we receive from God through an intimate relationship with his son? The correct answer here is that there's an infinite amount of benefits. The point here is not that we should know each and every benefit at all times, what David is pointing out is our propensity to forget who our great and awesome God is. When we go through trials and tribulations, we so easily forget that even through it all, God is in control. From this point on in the psalm, we're given a list of benefits. And we'll now move into each one of these. We'll look at verses 3 through 13 next section in the next few verses we see that each one starts with who this is not a question in any way and is not 
intended to, t to be taken as such. The who refers back to the first two verses where we are told to bless the Lord. So the, the who is the Lord himself. In verse 3 it reads, Who pardons all of your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases. The first part of the verse speaks of the Lord being the one that pardons iniquities. Our iniquities or sins are holy and only against our holy God. He is the only one who has the authority to pardon them because they're against him. Along with this, we should also recognize that he is under no obligation, no obligation whatsoever to pardon us in the first place. Yet because of his great love, mercy, and sacrifice of his son, we are pardoned. It reminds me uh, of a song that we sing often, a phrase in it says, Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise God for his great mercy. This alone, this alone is enough for us to praise God. As I prepared uh, to share this psalm, I couldn't help but think um, that I was stuck kind of in an, in an infomercial where each time you read one of these benefits, all you can think is, but wait, there's more. Each, each one of these is enough. But we move on into the second part of this verse that says, the Lord heals all of our diseases. It's important to note here that it's not speaking of some sort of health and wealth gospel where you come to Jesus and you'll miraculously be healed of all things. This in no way means that if you come to Jesus, everything will be fine and dandy. It, won't, it doesn't mean that you will be healed if your faith is strong enough or you have sown a seed, nothing like that. As one commentary says, this is not a promise, but a testimony which should be understood in the light of Deuteronomy 32.29. In Deuteronomy 32.29, we see that it says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. David is reminding us that it is God who is in control of our health. And at any given moment, he could take our life and he'd be perfectly justified in doing so. Let us praise him and give him glory with every breath that he gives us. In the next verse, verse 4, it says, Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. In this verse, our sin is depicted as a pit, a pit that we just keep digging further and further into. So deep that there is no possible way that we can pull ourselves out of it. Our gracious Father pulls us out of that pit into newness of life. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. The verse goes on to say that the Lord crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. His mercy, love, and compassion is what crowns us. 
a beautiful picture of such unmerited favor. Verse 5 says, Who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now what good things could this verse be talking about? How about we start with the fact that he pardons our iniquities, what it just mentioned before. This is a great and wonderful thing that he satisfies our years with. And there's so much more. Look around you. How wonderful it is to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who love and care for us. In light of this, and so much more, our hearts, our hearts should sing for joy. And that's the picture that's given of our youth being renewed like the eagle. That by these things that we are given, that he satisfies us with, we should be singing for joy. That feeling of our hearts being in flight. Verse 6 says, The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. The church is often, if not always, under attack in some way or another. Yet God works on our, be on our behalf, bringing justice in the midst of our persecution. I think of Esther, even in the midst of what I'm sure was a frightening time for God's people. God was working through all of that. Another example is found in the life of Joseph. We see the working of God even through his brothers selling him into slavery. Through all of these things, the Lord performs his righteous deeds. We may not understand what he's doing, but he knows perfectly what he's doing. Verse 7 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. You want to talk about a confusing time? A time filled with all sorts of trials? You look at the time of Moses and Israel in the wilderness. Even in such times, God made known his ways to Moses. God does the same for his people today. Now this is not to say that in, in any way that we have replaced Israel, because we haven't and never will. What it is saying, however, is that he has made known to us his ways. In his perfect word, he has provided for us all that we need for life and godliness. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Fear him. Know him. Know and obey his commandments. In everything you do, you should be seeking to bring him glory. Verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. How wonderful it is that we have a God who is compassionate, a God who is giving and cares for us. We are a people who often fail, and by often I mean daily, to meet God's standards. Because of this, we are in need of God's grace every moment of every day. If you don't think you are in need of his compassion and grace, you think too lightly of your sin and have much too low a view of God's holiness. Our text here says that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If you need an example of this, I strongly encourage you to read 
through the book of Numbers. How many times did Israel, God's chosen people, doubt, question, and rebel against what God had ordained? Yet through every act of rebellion and doubt, God was gracious and allowed them to continue living. Now don't be naive and think that this gives us free license to do whatever we want. Far from it. We'll see this as we move into our next verse. In verse 9, it reads, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. There will be a day when we will have to give an account for the life we led. In Romans 14, 12, it says, Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. There will be a day where we will be held accountable. Regarding this verse, one commentary I read says, There will be a final day of accountability, both at death and the great white throne. The Genesis flood served as a stark preview of this truth. God's anger or wrath is not something to be taken lightly. God's wrath is what each one of us deserves because of our sin. This sounds like terrible news, but what this verse does is set us up for the next few verses in the psalm. These next few verses are verses that you may have heard whether that's uh, repeated or in songs, or you may have even committed them to memory. The next time you read or hear these verses, think of what the alternative would be and praise God for his mercy. In verse 10, we read, He has not dealt with us according to our sins. How terrible it would be had he dealt with us according to our sins. How dare say we wouldn't be here? <laughs> nor it says continues it says nor he has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. Again, that <laughs> I would not want that reward had it been according to our iniquities. Our great and merciful Father withholds His judgment. God's wrath was completely satisfied by the atoning death of Christ. In 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, we read that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of this, believers will never be condemned for their sins. Praise Jesus for his great sacrifice. Praise him for accomplishing what we could not do for ourselves. In the next three verses, we are given a vision. You could call it that, uh, of the deep, deep love of the Father. I'll read these verses together, and again, um, we'll just break those down so that we can see the full picture here. In verse 11, we start with, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. In verse 11, we're given a picture of God's loving kindness being as high as the heavens are above the earth. What this is intended to picture is an enormous distance. Not just that, but a distance that cannot be measured. This is how great God's love is toward those who fear him. There's an important distinction to make about the last part of the verse. What does it mean to fear him? We were actually talking about this in the youth group uh, lesson about a week and a half ago, uh, a week and a half ago at this point. Um, We were asking the youth what it means to, to fear God, to fear the Lord. And we came to the conclusion that it doesn't mean to be afraid of God, though that you, you would think that's what this is saying. I think a more accurate a more accurate description of this would be um, that it's, it's something that we should be revering God, that we should be in awe of who he is and obey his commandments in light of that. I'm finding my place here. Though for the unbeliever, this may be true that they are afraid of God, the unbeliever should fear the judgment of God and the eternal separation from him. For the believer, fear of God is much different, or it should be. To fear God means that we worship him with reverence and awe. To fear God means that we seek to know him and obey his commandments. In verse 12, we're given yet another immeasurable distance. Of course, it doesn't mean that it's the distance around the globe from one point all the way around to the same point. That's not, that's not what it's depicting here. Though even that distance would be incredibly large. This is meant to picture an infinite distance. This time it's des- it describes how far God has removed our sins from us. Verse 13 gives another extreme measurement. It repeats to us the great love and compassion that the Father has for those who fear him. God's love and compassion is unlike any other God. There is no comparison. There is no competition. Our Father loves and cares for us unlike other so-called gods who don't care or are hostile. That's the love that is depicted here when it talks of a father's compassion upon his children. In the next few verses, we'll take a look at a comparison that is made between who man is and who God is. First, we're given the description of what man is like. I'll read verses 14 through 16. We read, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. 
when the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And it place, its place acknowledges it no longer. We like to think of ourselves as big and tough. But the truth is that we are extremely fragile. We are in constant need of our God. And he is mindful of how fragile we are. Man is compared to dust, grass, and a flower of the field. All of these things indicating that we are very weak, temporary, and easily cut off. We need to be careful of thinking too highly of ourselves and not having a high enough view of the creator and sustainer of all things. In verses 17 through 19, we're then given a description of who God is and what he is like. We see a vast difference in who God is compared to the description we were given to man. In verses 17 and 18, we are reminded of how eternal our God is and how his love and mercy are forever on those who fear him and obey his commandments. Verse 17 is actually quoted by Mary in the Magnificat. After receiving good news of the coming Messiah, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. As Mary is praising God for his great love and mercy, she quotes verse 17 in Luke 1.50, saying, And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. What greater mercy could God show other than sending his son. In verse 19, the great majesty of the Lord is highlighted. It says that his throne is in the heavens, indicating that his throne is over or higher than every single other throne that has been, is currently held, or ever will be held. He is the ruler of rulers, sovereign of sovereigns, king of kings, and lord of lords. What are we to do in response to this? Bow down to him. Praise him. As if all that we've been given in the last 18 verses wasn't enough. As if it wasn't enough reason, we are now reminded that he is the one and only almighty God. Praise him with holy reverence. I want to read something uh, that I came across regarding God's sovereignty. Um, I wish I could put this quote up there for you. I, I, I meant to do so, but I'll read this from you. It's from um, a book that I'm reading called Show Me Your Glory by Steve Lawson. He describes God's sovereignty this way. There will be no end to the eternal reign of God. Throughout endless ages to come, he will sit on his throne and perpetuate the free exercise of his supreme authority. God will reign as sovereign forever and ever. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The sovereignty of God is like a soft pillow upon which the believer lays his head at night. There is no attribute more comforting to God's children 
than the sovereignty of their Father. Under our most adver adverse circumstances, we believe that sovereignty has ordained our afflictions. In the most severe trials, we trust that God has a purpose, and behind that purpose is his master plan. Even in the darkest valleys, we must rely on this foundational truth, the divine sovereignty is using it as a part of a far greater design for his glory and our good. In the lowest ebb of life, we may remain confident that God will use these difficulties to sanctify us. We're convinced that nothing lies outside of God's control. All things are moving forward by the inscrutable mystery of his eternal will. His supreme authority remains operative. His timing is perfect. His hand remains on us for good. All things, both good and bad, both prosperity and adversity, are being directed by God for a far greater good. If it was not for the sovereignty of God, he would despair, because he remains on his throne, ruling over every storm of life, we remain full of hope, knowing it is all under his guidance. Moving on to verse, verses 20 through 22, the last part we'll see. This God we worship because of all of this that has been mentioned, David again says in the closing verses. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here David invites everything, both in the heavens and on the earth to join in the praise and adoration of God. This is what we're created for, to praise and glorify his name. If you're anything like me, there are those times or days that you just don't feel like worshiping God. Times that you feel discouraged or downcast because of your circumstances. Let me remind you that even in the midst of trial, God is sovereign. The awesome God that is described in this psalm still is and will forever be in control of every detail. The more we know our God, the more we will praise him. Our joy and encouragement is found in him. To know God is to love God. How can we know God? Be in his word. Behold God's sovereignty through, throughout all of scripture. The higher your view of God, the more you will realize, you will realize all our circumstances are momentary light afflictions. Remind yourself of who your God is and bless his holy name.
Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are in control, we are not. Lord, we know that we are weak, and we need you every second of every day. I pray that that would be continually on our minds and that we would look to you in every circumstance of life, Lord, whether things are going well or they're not going according to what we thought they should. We pray that we would turn to you, acknowledge who you are, and praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.